Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We bless you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ and through the written testimony of him in the Gospels and all throughout your scriptures, Lord. Thank you that you are a God who wants to be known and who can be known. And we pray now that you would make yourself known to us in the preaching of your word. That these texts that we consider this morning would so come alive to us that we wouldn't just think about them, that we would take them into ourselves and that they would change us and grow us and stretch us. We believe that you can do it by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen. In our gospel reading for today, we meet a man who is in a very bad place. He was an invalid, the text tells us in John 5. It appears that he couldn't walk. He was paralyzed in some way because when we meet him, he's lying next to the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And he'd been in that condition for 38 years. That's a very long time. We don't know how old he was, but 38 years is long enough to forget what well even feels like. Many people in Israel at that time had heard of Jesus, they heard of his healing ministry, and they were actively seeking him out, trying to get that healing. So you have blind Bartimaeus on the road to Jericho, and he was crying out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He, he was crying out for it. He wanted it. You have the woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She actively sought out Jesus. She touched his robe. You have the centurion who went in this very humble way, and he sought the healing of Jesus for his servant that was dying. But this man, this paralyzed man, was not seeking out Jesus' healing. Instead, Jesus comes upon him, and he asked the paralyzed man a very important but very strange question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? We set out this summer with two questions that we were going to ask of the book of Psalms. And the first question, the one that we've been dealing with for the past few weeks, is about pain. We know in this life that we're going to have pain. Our theme verse was from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have pressure. You're going to have opposition and struggles. Life is going to be hard. And so we've been asking, okay, that's, the great, that's what's going to happen. How do we deal well with that? And the answer that we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks from the Psalms is that we lament our pain. We bring it before God honestly. We lay it before Him. I don't think that's something that we're particularly good at doing. We have other ways to deal with our pain, but we really need to develop into our hearts, into our prayer life, this practice of godly lament. So two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 44. There were some painful circumstances there, but it didn't seem to be the fault of the person lamenting. It's very much like the suffering of Job. Sometimes we're suffering, sometimes we have hardship, we don't know why, we can't explain it, it doesn't make sense, and we can lament in that space. And then last week we looked at Psalm 38. This is where the lament is because of our own fault. It's because of our sin, and we know it. And that was a penitential type of lament. 
So God allows those that he loves, those that he calls his children, to experience pain. He doesn't excuse us from that. But in our pain, he gives us this great gift of lament, this invitation to cry out to him, to lay our pain before his throne. He is this compassionate and caring God. He is a safe place to go in times of trouble. Lament, we've described as like that lifeline, that that coming down of the U.S. Coast Guard um, where the person is in the waves and they're overwhelmed, and it, it really has a way of saving us, of giving us something to grab onto of God in those overwhelming times. The question I want to ask this morning is, what's on the other side of lament? What's on the other side of lament? Is lament the only approach we have to dealing well with pain, or is there something more? Because some of you here today, you've had a particular struggle for a long time, and you have lamented it. You've tried that, but now you really actually want to move through the pain into something else. You want to see the hand of God not only comfort you, yes, but also do something to make your circumstances better. In short, you want to be healed. Pain presents us with a choice. At some point, there is a fork in the road, and we must decide what path we want to walk down. One path is to be overcome by our pain, to let it define our reality, to let it define our identity, who we think we are. On this path, a person can begin to think about themselves as a victim. Now, maybe they truly were a victim of some wrong, of something, or maybe they weren't really, but regardless, victim becomes their identity. It's how they relate to the world. It's how they deal with their pain. And there's a lot of self-pity involved when we get in those places. A person overcome by their pain can be very self-consumed, extremely focused on self. There can be a lot of blaming, a lot of bitterness, a lot of hopelessness in the face of circumstances that seem impossible to change. And I think the invalid from John 5 has chosen some version of this path. Now, he does seem to have a desire for healing because he is at this pool of Bethesda, and there was this legend at the time that an angel of God would come down to the waters and he would stir them up, and the first person to get into the water after that would be the one who was healed. And so there's that lingering desire in him to be healed. He's there after all. And yet how he answers this question of Jesus, do you want to be healed, is very telling. He responds, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So he doesn't say, yes, I want to be healed although he may have that desire. Instead, he talks about his impossible circumstances. I don't have anyone to put me in the pool. And he blames others. Another steps down before me. This is a picture of a man overcome by his pain. He's in a really bad place. And I don't think we should judge him too harshly. He is powerless. His circumstances do seem to be impossible. If the only way to be healed is to get into that water first, then yeah, he's out of luck. He's stuck in the condition that he's in. There's another direction, though, that we can take at this fork in the road of pain, and it is the path towards healing. 
We can set our feet on that path of healing, and I think it's right to call it a path. Because on this path, our pain does not just vanish. In fact, we'll carry a lot of our grief, our pain, our sorrow, our regrets with us along the way. But on the path of healing, we're not defined by the pain. We don't become a victim. We don't become consumed with self-pity. We don't get stuck blaming others. We actually move through the pain or we learn to walk with the pain. We keep going. We keep growing. And we don't let our present circumstances, however impossible they may seem, be the sum total of our reality. People who set their feet on this path of healing develop wisdom. They develop depth. They grow into maturity. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 25. And I chose this psalm because I think it gives us a picture on what's on the other side of lament. If lament is this, this large mountain that we're, we're sort of grappling on when we're in pain, eventually we can come to the other side of that, and 25 gives us this picture of what that looks like. It lays out a great description of the path of healing, of what's going on inside of a person who's chosen to walk that path of healing rather than the victim and self-pity path. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 25. And I want to look at five characteristics of a person who, in response to pain, has chosen the path of healing. And the first one is concentration. Concentration. Really, this answers the question, where do we look in our pain? To whom or to what do we direct our gaze? I think there are four types of uh, gazing in response to pain. You have the never gazer, the navel gazer, the neighbor gazer, and the God gazer. <laughs> you can guess what the never gazer does. He or she just doesn't look at it. They just they don't even ever lament. They don't deal with their pain. They're not honest about it. They stuff it and they say, I'm fine. The navel gazer looks where? Into oneself. They spend a lot of time stewing in their emotions. They process their pain a lot, but they're looking for answers by looking down inside themselves. The neighbor gazer looks at others. He or she is hoping to find answers for pain in relationship to someone else. Their emotional center of gravity is usually located in another person. And if things are tough, they're quick to blame others. Maybe one of these describes you better than others. Or maybe we're all just a combination of the three of them. But in Psalm 25, we see a picture of the God-gazer. This person's concentration is up. It's on God. And we have two great mental pictures of this, uh, first in verse 1 and then verse 15. In verse 1, he starts off the whole psalm by saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. It's almost like he's a priest offering his soul as a sacrifice to God. He's not denying the pain like the never-gazer. He's not um, looking into himself to try to find the answers hunched over like this. He's not the neighbor-gazer saying, help me fix my soul, fix my problems. He's saying, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I put my trust in you. And the other imagery comes from verse 15. This one is so helpful. He says, my eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. We know the psalmist has some difficult circumstances. At the end of the psalm, 
That's where the lament portion comes in. There's pain. And he describes that pain as having his feet trapped in a net. But notice where he looks. Not at the net. Not at his feet. When I'm stuck, I like to focus on the problem. When somebody else comes to me and they're stuck, I like to focus on their problems. I like to fix things. Okay, cool, let's get down into it. Let's start pulling on the net. Let's get out the pliers. Let's pull it apart. And yet a lot of times, what happens when we do that? Imagine like an animal who's gotten stuck in a net of some sort. They get real anxious. They're pulling at things. Like a big wad of fishing line, it just gets more and more tangled and tight, and it gets very difficult to get released from it. The God-gazer takes a different place. He says, my feet are in the net, but I'm going to keep my eyes focused on God. I'm going to concentrate on him, knowing that he and he alone can get me out of this place. So where is our concentration in pain? Is it on God or is it on something else? That will tell us a lot of whether we're on this path of healing or headed down some other path. A second characteristic of this person is confidence. Verses 2 and 3. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let my enemies not exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The psalmist has a confidence, but it's not in himself. It's in the Lord. And I think this particular confidence is expressed through waiting. He's waiting on God to act. He's waiting on God to deliver him. He's trusting that he will not be put to shame. And in this context, being put to shame would be shown publicly to have the object of your hope fall through. So in this case, he's putting his hope in God, and he's saying, I'm not going to be put to shame because I know that God will come through. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know it will happen. On the contrary, those who at the end of the day who are going to be put to shame are those who counted God out and said, I don't, I don't have anything to deal with him what the psalmist calls wantonly treacherous. Now, what did the psalmist learn this confident waiting? Well, as a person in the story of Israel, who'd heard the stories of faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to Moses, to the people of God, to David, he would have lived in those stories and allowed those stories to build his confidence that how God had acted in the past will fit with how God will act in the future. And hopefully he also has some of his own personal stories of how God met him in faithfulness. But I think a lot of confident waiting is actually the muscle being strengthened when we lament. That we can't necessarily just skip around lament. That lamenting itself is like building that muscle of confident, hopeful waiting. There's an intimacy that we share with God in pain. There's a trust that's only built when we're crying out to Him in our broken-hearted places so that we can wait on Him. So we still might be in pain on this path of healing, but if we're waiting on God in the midst of our pain, we're confident that we won't be put to shame, we continue on that right path. The third characteristic is character. Character. And in a biblical sense, um, character is someone who has experienced pain and hardship, who has been humbled by it, and who is learning from it. They've experienced They've been humbled by it. They're learning from it. You see a lot of that in this psalm. 
A lot of these lines of teach me, make me to know your ways. So look at verses four and five. The psalmist says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So he's saying, I'm in pain, I'm in hardship, but I want to learn. But I want to walk your path, O Lord. And then a little later in verse 9, he says, he leads the humble in what is right. And he teaches the humble his way. You see, a proud person can't grow because they don't think they have anything to learn from God or from others. But a humble person can grow. A humble person seeks out God's path. Pain is not fun, but it offers us this gift of humility if we'll receive it. Pain is like this invitation to humble ourselves, to seek God, and to grow. Self-pity, being self-consumed, taking on the identity of a victim, blaming others, even anger at ourselves, all of these are really just a form of pride. They all put the focus on self. They overinflate the self. They make the self this thing that looms large in all of our thoughts and all of our actions, and that prevents the growth of humility and character. The person on the path of healing says, I don't like pain any more than the next person. I don't like hardship, but I know in relationship to God, it produces this character. And so I will rejoice in those opportunities. Not put up with those opportunities. Rejoice in them. That's what Scripture teaches consistently. James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And then our uh, Pauline text for today, Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We all can agree on that. Yep, hope, yep, glory, we like that. But not only that, he continues, we rejoice in our sufferings. And how do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces that character, and character produces hope. See that bracket of hope? He starts with rejoicing in hope. He comes back to having more hope. How do we get more hope? We rejoice in the hardships, in the character that it brings, the humility it brings. We ask God to teach us. We welcome his fatherly discipline. We say, Lord, this is hard, but please grow in us true character. That's the path of healing. The fourth characteristic is confession. The person on the path of healing knows that he or she is a sinner that is in need of grace. Grace for past sins, grace for present sins, grace for future sins. Confession is not condemning ourselves. It's not beating ourselves up, hating ourselves because of our sin. That's just another form of pride. If you're in Christ, God has not condemned you. Who do you think you are to condemn yourself? Is your judgment better than his? God doesn't hate you. Who do you think you are to hate yourself? Is your judgment better than his? Confession is simply acknowledging that we still struggle with sin, and we need the grace of Christ. And we hear this particular uh, confession of the psalmist in verses six and seven, where he says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me 
for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. When we ask God to remember something, we're, we're asking him to attend to us in a particular way. And the psalmist says, please attend to me based on your steadfast love, not based on my sins. And friends, we know that that prayer has been answered in Christ. On this side of the cross, we don't have to wonder whether or not God will attend to us in his love. God already has. And if we've placed our faith in Christ, he always will remember us according to his love. Not according to wrath, not according to our sin, but according to merciful love. It's actually when we get in this practice of confession that we really get to see clearly the character of God as loving. You see, if we never acknowledge our sins, or if we take the path of healing, we really make it in this path of perfectionism or legalism, or we, we kind of fall into self-righteousness, we don't actually get to know the heart of God. We don't actually get to experience the riches of His kindness and grace. But if we're people who on the path of healing fall down a lot, people who pick up new bumps and bruises along the way, people who re-injure the old things that got them on the path in the first place, those are the people that continue to seek out for and to know the grace of God as they walk. The fifth characteristic of a person on this path of healing is covenant friendship covenant friendship. In verse 12, the psalmist poses a question. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Who is the man who fears the Lord? And fearing the Lord is not being afraid of Him. It is this reverence for Him. It is awe for Him. It is regard for Him. Fearing God is, is someone who acknowledges God as God, who puts God first, who considers God in all they do. One verse 14, after describing that person, there's this beautiful and yet somewhat surprising truth. He says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. And that Hebrew word translated friendship, it can also be translated um, secret counsel. It's basically saying that those who fear God, God lets into His inner circle. He shares his secrets with them. He counts them as a friend. And there's some great pictures of this throughout the Bible. Going back to Abraham. Abraham feared God. He walked with God. And when it came God, a time for God to, to act against Sodom and Gomorrah, he says to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And then he shows Abraham what he's about to do. He lets them in on his secret counsel. And then he gives Abraham this, this opportunity to intercede to actually have a conversation with the Lord. And then we see it in Moses. He's invited in the presence of God to speak with God like a friend. The rest of the people dare not draw so near. Moses had to wear this veil when he came out to talk to the people because the glory of God was so heavily upon him. But when he went in into the presence of the Lord, he removed the veil in order to speak with him. We have the Apostle Paul, who was a friend of God. And we're told in Ephesians that God revealed to the Apostle Paul, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, which as he revealed to us and to all the world, was the church, with Jews and Gentiles coming together as one people of God. And then I think most definitively we hear it from Jesus' own lips in John chapter 15, where he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Why? For all that I have heard from my Father, 
I have made known to you. I have let you into the inner circle of the Trinity. You know what's going on now. You're a friend. The path of healing is a long and difficult one. We need the covenant of friendship God as we walk. We need to know how close He is. We need to know His presence in the dark valleys. And we need to be reminded when we're in the muck and mire of life that God has revealed to us His secret counsels. He's shown us the big picture. He's told us where the path of healing is going. That's one of the best parts. We know where it's going. It's got a lot of twists and turns, a lot of hills and valleys, but in the end, where does it go? Resurrection, new creation. We know that in the end, tears will be wiped away. Sickness will be no more. We know that there'll be a river and a tree, and the leaves of that tree will be for the healing of the nations. He's shown us all that in his covenant friendship. We know these things, and yet along the way, we need to be reminded of them. Our paralytic friend by the pool was in a bad place. There was no way by sheer willpower that he was going to be healed. Literally and metaphorically, he could not pick himself up by his bootstraps. No amount of self-help was going to help him. There wasn't enough positive thinking in the world to give him the power over paralysis. And his assessment of his circumstances was correct. If, in fact, the legend was true and healing was available for the first one in the pool, then he was not going to get there. He was never going to be first, and so why not? Why not just give in to the pain? Why not just be overcome? Why not just be the victim and full of self-pity? What other option is there? There's one thing that he failed to account for. One circumstance he didn't quite know yet. Unbeknownst to him, the kind stranger standing before him was the Lord of life. And Jesus didn't need a pool or an angel to heal. He just needed to speak the word. And so he said to the man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the man did, in the full sight of everyone. We're told that he was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Friends, the circumstances that are difficult and painful in our lives, they're real. They're real. We're not making them up. We don't have to deny them. We don't have to pretend we're not there. And left on our own, none of us has any hope of healing. But we're not on our own. Jesus stands before us and with us. Jesus is present right here in this place by the presence of his spirit. We may have very difficult circumstances in our lives, but Jesus is the defining, the overruling circumstance if we've trusted in him. And to each and every one of us, he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. It's an invitation to follow him on the path of healing. Now, for the man who'd been paralyzed, there was a dramatic, instantaneous healing. And sometimes God still does that. In this very dramatic fashion, in a very short amount of time, God heals us physically, emotionally, relationally. Some of you can bear witness to that act of power of God. But much of the time, in my experience, almost all of the time, there's a path to follow. It's a process. 
doesn't happen all at once. It's easy for us to look at the story and think, well, that guy was healed instantaneously. How nice for him. I wish I could have that. And yet this man still had a path to walk, did he not? Physically, he got up, he took his bed, but maybe he still had to learn some things. Maybe his legs were a little bit wobbly and he had to actually figure out how to walk. Or maybe he now had the the great challenge of figuring out, now I'm well, what am I going to do? I have to find employment. He has to deal with the shame or the the social ostracization of, of being that invalid for 38 years. Seems like he could have been pretty lonely. Jesus didn't instantly give him friends or we're not told that he did. In fact, on the contrary, the very next scene, if you've read on, he gets confronted by the authorities. They said, who healed you? So now he's in trouble with the religious authorities. Then Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do? Give him a hug and pat on the back? No, what does he say to him? Don't sin anymore. Something worse might happen to you. So now he's got to deal with sin in his life and keep going. So yes, he was instantly healed in one way. And yes, he also had a path of healing to walk just like you and me. But because Jesus showed up in his life, he had been invited to walk on the path. He had hope that there was an actually healing that was available. That man, like us, he he now had someone to concentrate on besides the pain. He had a person in whom to place his confidence. He had a person to shape his character, to receive his confession, and to offer him this covenant friendship. Friends, we can walk that path. Whatever pool you might find yourself sitting beside today, feeling discouraged by your circumstances, longing for wholeness, blaming yourself, blaming others, stuck in self-pity, you don't have to stay there. Your circumstances are not the last word because Jesus is standing before you and he invites you to walk with him on this path of healing. Let's pray. Lord, you know where each of us sits today. You know the longing of each of our hearts. You know what healing looks like for each one of us. And Lord, we're so grateful that we can lament, that we can cry out to you in pain. But Lord, we also want to move on the other side of that. We want all the healing that you can give. Whether that's instantaneous, whether that takes a lifetime, we want to be on that road. We know where it ends. We bless you and praise you for that. Invite us, walk with us, show us the steps. For we pray it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.